Hello, and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna. I'm a senior fellow here at the Fund, and I'm going to be your host for the next half an hour or so. Today, we're going to be talking about the quality of health and social care services. We'll discuss the current state of services in England, how quality of care is assessed, and also linked to that, the Care Quality Commission and the role it plays in the system. So to discuss these issues, I'm joined by some wonderful guests today. We've got Chris Day, Ruth Robertson and Simon Bottery. So rather than me introduce you, could you each please introduce yourselves? And as we're going to be talking about quality today, in your introductions, it would be great if you could tell us if you ever use quality ratings to decide what to buy or where to go. That could be health care or restaurants or buying a book. Thanks, Helen. I'm Ruth Robertson. I'm a senior fellow here at the Fund and I've done a lot of research over the years looking at the Care Quality Commission, its impact and how its inspections work. Mm -hmm. And I think you asked whether uh, we used ratings Mm -hmm. to make decisions. I think the main area of my life where I use ratings is for restaurants. Mm -hmm. So I often look up uh, Michelin Guide, Mm -hmm. not for their star ratings, but for their Bib Gourmand, which is their um, sign of an affordable restaurant of good quality. So I often go to those restaurants. And I also look at the hygiene ratings that are put on um, restaurants. And just thinking about it now, uh, sometimes I choose to ignore them. (laughs) I think my favourite restaurant in uh, Camberwell, one of my favourite Chinese restaurants, has quite a low hygiene rating I realised recently and I'm choosing to just justify why that might be the case that isn't to do with it having poor hygiene but you know I think there's some interesting parallels there to how we use uh, healthcare ratings and and which bits we focus on. Yeah and how much we ignore absolutely. (laughs) Thanks Ruth. Chris. Hi Chris Day Director of Engagement at CQC. I'm responsible for the state of care report amongst my other other roles and in terms of uh, the use of ratings uh, as an occupational hazard of being somebody who works in a regulator people ask me all the time about uh, where's it it good to get a good dentist or a good uh, GP so (laughs) I do use our ratings uh, primarily directing friends and family uh, to to good services and um, I'm also an online shopper so I use star ratings a lot uh, along, alongside reviews to indicate whether services I'm going to get are good or not. Mm, sounds very useful to have a relative or friend working in the CQC. Simon. Uh, so I'm Simon Bottery and I'm a senior fellow um, specialising in social care here at the, at the King's Fund. Like Chris I use ratings and reviews for online shopping so I'll quite often uh, go and look at what customers say on Amazon uh, yeah. about a book before then hopefully going and buying it in a, in a local uh, bookshop. Yeah. Um, and I also use, I realise I also use online and newspaper ratings and previews of TV programmes and that can go badly wrong um, so and I know this is not necessarily a, a widely shared view but I was persuaded to watch Bodyguard on BBC One oh, on yeah. the basis of the previews yeah. uh, and it was just tosh wasn't it really quite <laughs> frankly I uh, really liked it but my husband thought it was utter tosh yeah. okay well I'm, I'm, I'm with your husband on, on, on this one um, so there are four or five star ratings that Bodyguard got I suppose that there's something there about subjectivity yeah. probably in the river ratings absolutely and who's writing the rating yeah absolutely okay Let's get into the meat of our discussion. Let's start with how health and social care services are currently doing in England. Chris, the CQC, you've recently published your State of Care report, which is an annual assessment of the quality of health and care services in England. Mm -hmm. Tell us what's what's going on. Okay, so um, the first thing to say is that 
uh, despite what is the well-documented enormous pressure in the system through the amount of access that people require, there is a tremendous amount of good and outstanding provision out there. What the State of Care report shows is that there is still too much variability across the country. What it also shows, and particularly the work we've done in the system reviews this, this year, is that there may be high quality services out there, but people's access to them is significantly diminished. So people's experience of care, so if you've, if you've got a diagnosis of cancer, uh, you may have a good, a good diagnosis, it might happen quickly in a GP, but your access to services there, thereafter might be significantly mm. undermined. And so what the State of Care report shows is, often when we see signs of failure in an organisation, and perhaps the most documented of those are issues around A&E in different parts of the country, it can be symptomatic of a wider issue in that local health economy where people can't get access to the services closer to where they live. And so one of the recommendations out of the report was about how we think about changing the way services are funded and also the way services are, are incentivised to work together to make sure that people are, have got access to the right support in the right place at the right time. Great, thank you. And Ruth and Simon, you've both done quite a lot of work in your own areas looking at the quality of, of services. Does CQC's assessment chime with your understanding of how services are doing? Simon, should we start with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what Chris has described is the national picture and a national uh, average, but, he, but he's pointed out that there's a lot of regional variability. Mm. So if you look between um, different council areas in terms of the quality of care homes and care services, you see very, very wide and frankly unexplained variations. Uh, so if you live in one county, you may well struggle to find uh, a, a home that's rated good or outstanding, whereas in another county you may have a much wider choice. So, And I think understanding why that's happening is really important. Mm. I think the other issues for me are around improvement. And I mean, what the CQC is doing is providing a snapshot in time. Yeah. Um, but actually, between inspections, homes can get better, but also they can get mm. worse. Mm. And there's a classic example, I'm afraid, in the recent report where you've got one care home in the country which uh, began life as outstanding, but by the next inspection had actually uh, fallen to inadequate. Wow. So so that issue around how it changes mm. and about issues around improvement, I think, are, is also really important. Ruth, what's your take on Chris's assessment or the CQC's assessment? Sorry. <laughs> I think this... <laughs> I think the CQC's data on variation is really powerful because we know, you know, we know the public don't really realise that there's a variation in the quality of care in the NHS. Work we've done shows, you know, most people just think there's a, a general good standard of service. And what we see in the state of care report is a whole range from inadequate out, up to outstanding that varies within local areas and between areas. So um, I think that variation is, is, is important and the transparency yeah. it provides to try and make people know that there are differences and there are areas that need to improve. Um, I also think from the public's perspective, sometimes individual inspection reports aren't necessarily going to reflect their experience. You know, a patient's experience is about access, going to a number of providers and transitioning all through the system. And sometimes the quality they might see in an individual inspection report might not relate to their own experience. I found recently my dad has been in hospital and um, when I read the inspection report for the hospital where he was being treated, it 
it didn't really resonate with me in terms of his experience. Mm-hmm. I then read the local system review that CQC have done for the the the, the town, the city where where he lives, and and that's talking about how older people move between services. Yeah. And I was suddenly just in total agreement with everything it said. It really resonated with me. So I guess what I'm saying is there's different views of, of quality. Yeah. The CQC can can look at it through through different lenses, and and some of them will resonate more or less with with people about mm. their own experience experiences. There's one other um, really powerful message, I think, in the state of care report, which can be difficult to square, I think, with what we see in the system, which is that overall, the quality of care is improving. And I think that's a really positive message for people working in the NHS. But for people like us that Mm -hmm. looking at all the pressures and analysing the issues all the time, when I read that, I thought, Wow, is that really what's <laughs> happening? Um, it's it's surprising given the huge pressures that these services are under. And I appreciate there's something about there's there's the variation point, but it, it was certainly something that kind of stood out to me when I read the report. As and it su- comes surprising. after eight years of austerity as well. So so what's going on? What's going on? Well, there? I, th- I think it's it's also worth saying. Uh, so I agree with Ruth very much. But if and particularly in social care, if you and when you do ask the public what they think about the quality of care in care homes and, and home care, it's not as rosy as the as the picture that the CQC um, would objectively provide with sort of eight in, in ten uh, services being good or outstanding. The public has a much stronger perception of issues around abuse and neglect um, a, a, as part of the system. They you know they they see rushed home care workers mm. trying to get in and out of, of homes uh, quickly so so there is that mm. gap and I think it's quite an important gap to keep keep an eye on and um, because it, it risks actually undermining the the sort of objective uh, report if the public feels strongly that actually that isn't painting a fair picture I agree with both those points but but just two things I, w- I would say there is obviously, as you say, it's a snapshot of, of care each year. We obviously track the organisations where we have particular concerns with, and I think it's important to to recognise the improvements that are made in services. I do think that um, there is a danger that you can follow the media into a conversation that everything is going to hell in the handcart, and and it's not useful for the people who work in health and care services to say everything is bad and it's getting worse. Or the people that use them. Or indeed the people that use mm-hmm. them. And I think part of our role, I've always seen my role as a regulator not to be the traffic warden for health and care where we put tickets on things and walk away and say, well, it's up to you to sort yourselves out. Um, I've always seen our role to help understand why change is possible and what change is possible. The other thing I'd say, in some parts of the country, services have tipped. There's no question of the fact that there are some parts of the country where you cannot get access to a good or outstanding provider of the care that you need and I think we uh, sometimes we expected these things to be a national thing that it either goes or it doesn't go in some parts of the country for some people the care that they want to receive is no longer available in the way that they would want it and I think it's important to recognize that so the variation point is is an important one as a national picture but I think the individually and at local level we do see some real concerns and we talked about um, in the report how far you are away from a hospital that's good or outstanding is a is part of the indication about whether or not you can receive good care. Okay. So, Chris, it would be really helpful to just go back to first principles in terms of helping listeners understand what is the purpose of CQC? So our purpose is is really threefold. It's one is to make sure that services are safe and effective. So if there if there is 
significantly poor candidates out there that the, the public will know that we'll take action to uh, ensure that either that service is changed or that uh, that service is closed. So we, we're there to protect the public from poor care. We're also there to identify what needs to change in services. But I think there's a really important role for us in terms of being open to the public, giving them a real, a, a really good understanding about what services uh, are, are good and why they're good but also what services need to do to change and improve so that people can uh, ask and expect the services that they need. I think there's a, there's a, we did some work a couple of years ago with um, public groups from around the country, and I think there's a, unfortunately, there's still too many people who are grateful for the services that they yeah. receive rather than asking for the services that they should expect. And I think it has a long-term implication on, on, on individuals' health as well. So we're, we're also there for the public to give them a sense of what they can expect from services. Thank you. And how does an inspection work? Do you send armies of people <laughs> marching into a hospital or a GP practice? To I, I talk, re- talk us through. I always get on the Today programme describing uh, a thing six years ago as Mike's army. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've had uh, a numerous correspondence with people about that in the past. So what we try to do is when we go on to inspection, we, have, we look at things from from three different lenses. We'll often bring with us what we call experts by experience. People have got a lived experience of using the services that we're going to inspect. We'll bring with us experts in a particular area. So if we're going to look at an A&E, we'll probably bring an A&E consultant with us. Mm-hmm. And we'll bring, obviously, that'll be led by, by an inspector. So typically, we'll have uh, small teams of people, perhaps five or six people that will go in to look at a particular area. It might be larger if we've got a, what we feel is a systemic problem across a whole trust. I think some of the most interesting inspections that I've been on, if you take a hospitals, for example, talking to junior doctors and senior nurses, because mm. they are often, they tell you what's going on in an organisation and hearing what they think about their service from a point of view of both what they're proud of, but also what they wish would change, I think is instrumental in trying to um, provide a, a change to the, to the way services are run. We also talk to, obviously, to the senior leadership of an organisation and you can get typically one or two different responses to that. Sometimes, um, and probably the best response is where leaders know the issues that they face as an organisation. Yeah. Probably the worst response you can get from a chief exec going in to, to do a visit in, a, in any type of organisation is, thank you for telling me something I didn't know. That's not the answer that we want. We want, to, we want um, people who lead those organisations to understand the issues that, that are affecting them and we, so that we can help them understand what they need to do differently. Yeah. Okay, and what about consequences? I mean, I know there's a range of things that the CQC can do in response to a rating of a, yeah. of a service. Pr- probably the, um, the most important lever is the, the lever of transparency, the lever of telling a service leader what needs to change about their service. The oxygen of, of just publishing the report in enough detail to, to not just evidence what we know, but why we know what we know, is, a, is an important lever in driving change. And actually the ability of an organisation to understand that and then begin to work with it is what mm. will drive change the fastest. There are other measures. We can issue warning notices, we can restrict um, access to those services. And where we've got significant concerns about service, if we think a service is inadequate in some way, we will probably take steps to protect those people. And it can be anything from... Uh, in very serious cases an emergency closure of that of that mm. organization or part of the organization to a, a warning notice where we all come back in a very short period of time to work with that leadership team and perhaps other organizations like uh, NHS Improvement like the the RCGP or like the local authority to help ensure those services improve yeah but typically we find that if you if you have to resort to warning notices and then to more formal action 
it takes longer to drive the change and actually the most important thing we can do is to encourage the senior leadership in our organisation if, if we believe that change is possible from with them uh, of what they need to do. Thank you. Let's think a little bit about impact and effectiveness of the CQC as, as a regulator and its role in the system. Ruth, you've done some research recently looking at the impact of, of CQC's work. What can you tell us? Yeah, we've recently published a report along with Manchester Business School, a study we've been doing for the past three years, looking at the impact of CQC in four sectors. So in the acute mental health, general practice and adult social care sectors. I mean, first and foremost, we we spoke to 170 people and when we asked them whether they thought there was value in quality regulation and, and whether they thought, you know, the CQC should be there overwhelmingly and I was quite surprised by this people did see the value in having a quality regulator Mm -hmm. by the CQC and I think sometimes we hear when you you know you talk to clinicians and other providers about their inspection coming up and they're very negative sometimes or and you hear commentators sort of questioning the value of the regulator I was interested that when we had in-depth conversations with people they they all broadly recognised that quality regulation was the right thing to have. They did, however, have certain concerns about some of the ways that regulation is sometimes uh, enacted. The second point I was going to make, a big thing that came out of our study, and I encourage anyone who's interested to have a look at the report on our website, was that um, you might think about CQC as just having an impact through going in, doing an inspection Mm. and saying these are the things that need to change Mm. and then the provider either does or doesn't change uh, in, in line with those. But what we found was it, it doesn't work in that simple way. It's not just about what we term directive impact, mm. the regulator giving directions and the provider responding. Actually, we outline eight different ways that uh, the regulator has an impact. And, and that starts way before the inspection, yeah. just knowing that regulation's there, the, um, the five key questions that CQC has and the way it defines quality provides something for providers to um, aim towards. It provides a way for them to assess their own performance and, and prepare for regulation. So there's mm. there's a sort of impact just from the existence of, of, of the regulator. Yeah. Um, also impacts through, I think we talked a little bit about relationships mm. and, and the way that inspectors over the long term work with providers to try and identify problems and and identify areas for improvement. So I think the focus just on on the inspection mm. and the report is, is is not really going to be the way to get the biggest impact. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. I think the um the we did we did some work on dignity and nutrition a few years ago now and we, we actually targeted a very small number of organizations where we knew there was an issue. But what we saw is the effect that had on other organisations that weren't part of the work and yeah. had a, it had a massive impact on what they what they chose to do. But but you're absolutely right. The the ability of us to if we limited our thoughts to the only ability we have is to drive change after every individual inspection, we, we'd have missed the point of what we do. I, I think there is something where we can talk thematically about services, thematically about um, how systems work, and very much the, you know, your, your report talks about. Um, building a picture of an organisation beyond the act of individual inspections. 
And I'd just add a, another point there about impact and, and how we assess it. Um, my colleagues at Manchester University, Tommy Allen and uh, Kieran Walsh and others, did a huge amount of data analysis as part of our research, trying to see whether certain performance indicators changed uh, before and after inspection to see whether there, there was an impact of the inspection. So they looked in A&E, they looked in maternity services, and they looked in general practice at prescribing behaviour. And they looked before the inspection, then they looked six months mm-hmm. after. And actually, they found either no impact or a very small impact on key performance indicators in those areas. So that's quite a challenging finding on impact. Yeah. It's quite different from what we heard when we spoke to people about the impact of CQC, when we heard about a whole range of positive and negative impacts. Um, and I think... Uh, it's an interesting one to think through. Mm. And part of that might be what we were talking about, the fact that the inspection perhaps isn't the moment of impact. There's a whole continuum that's happening through the existence of CQC, the relationships built beforehand, the inspection happens, and then there's a lot of stuff that happens afterwards yeah. with other stakeholders. I think it is. So, I mean, I think the notes of sort of caution or just sort of realism about some of this uh, are that um, social care is, is different because, of course, in about half of cases, people aren't just choosing services, they're actually buying uh, services. So it's a, it's a market and, and, and provided in the main by independent sector providers. So what in an ideal world we want to see is people actively engaging with ratings and using those ratings in order to make the decisions about their care. In practice, though, people are often making a decision about a care home. Very often it's for a care home for a relative rather than themselves. They're doing it at a point of enormous stress. They may feel terribly guilty about the fact that actually mum or dad is having to go into a care home at all. Um, So the choices they make aren't the sort of necessarily the informed consumer choices that you would want people to to be making they're much more rushed and very often they're choosing on the basis of this is the care home that um, my mum was in or it's the one that I know well because it's closest to where I live uh, or or where I work so there's some way I think to Mm. go in terms of making ratings drive behavior Mm. and the second point is about the improvement issue uh, uh, as well and the difficulty in getting improvement Mm. off the back of of ratings and you know chris would and i think you know it's in the state of care report now of the three thousand or so social care services that needed improvement um only about half actually improved between one inspection and the next so you know we can flag it we can say that this is an issue we can say that it needs to improve but in the absence of the the support in order to make it happen there are going to be limitations about its effectiveness i think i agree with that i mean i do think that um the interesting about so things like the metrics like the four hour wait is whether they are a measure of good quality care that we need to think about what the real measures of that encourage the right behavior from both health and care organizations to work together so people get better care mm. i do think i you know I, I there are some real concerns for me about making sure that there is the opportunity for improvement i i would say and i would i would say this wouldn't i but um over half the people that access our website are accessing it for ratings for majority adult social care yeah. organizations so there are there are um, hundreds of thousands of people who are making decisions on that. I, I would like it to be more. Um, one of the things that we've tried to do is uh, to try and be where people will be at that point of need. Because mm. people, this is, as you, you know, eloquently described, it's often 
what's I think the uh, the marketing term for it is a distressed purchase. People you know, don't do this unless they have to. But if we can be at the point where, for example, in every local authority now in the pack, if you choose um, if you're going to choose social care, we're in the pack. I think it's important that we are where people will be at that point yeah. of, of need. And there's much more we can do. There's much more we need to do to make our information accessible and meaningful in, in that way. And that's you know, that, uh, very much part of what we intend to do next. So I think there's definitely work for us to do. But it's important to gather the right information to make the right judgments about what should and could improve. So I'd like to pick up on that point about information for choice because it can be difficult circumstances when people are choosing a care provider. But in the NHS... It seems as though choice as a policy is now sort of dwindling, dying. To what extent is information for choice actually something that patients can usefully make use of when choosing services? We did some work recently with people accessing maternity services. And I think Mm -hmm. you're right. I think by and large, going back to our point we made earlier, people expect services to be the same. They don't expect to, to, to have to make a choice because they expect their local service to be the service where they go. Maternity services is a good example of where people are increasingly using information to make a choice about how they access services and where where is best. From our own evidence that so far it is limited in, in NHS services to majoritively if you're going in for an operation if you, or, or if you're pregnant and you're looking to you're looking to where's the right place to give birth. But I, I think that's partly because we haven't explored yet how people want to consume and receive that information. Yeah. And that's that's very much part of what we need to do with our job and, and other organisations as well. Yeah, I think I'd add to that. I think we really need to manage our expectations of how much the public are going to use this information to mm. choose providers in the health sector. I think it's really important that the information's out there and that's for a range of reasons, not just about the public um, using the information. But the public really aren't using this in health. We did a piece of analysis looking at maternity care, actually, and we thought that would be the place where we were most likely to see choices being made. There's time to think about the decision. Mm. You know, you you can reflect on it and work it through with a a GP or other um, practitioner. And we looked at uh, services, maternity services that were rated as inadequate, either overall or for safe or for caring. And we had a look at whether uh, patients started going to different providers after that inadequate rating was given. And we found there was a very little impact on uh, where patients were going. So I think at the moment, at least, mm. uh, people aren't even using those ratings to avoid inadequate providers of maternity care. And there's also, I think, a question about where they get information from is changing mm. enormously. There was a, a really interesting uh, case recently where um, a story that went viral, which was uh, someone who'd gone in to visit their mum in, in a care home and they'd taken a photograph of the meal yes. that was being provided uh, and it was ham and chips. Uh, and it was a particularly unattractive uh, <laughs> ham and chips. And they took the photograph, they put it on Facebook and said, this isn't acceptable. And I think they were paying and they were saying, you know, this is yeah. uh, uh, you know, not good. And it got picked up and it ended up in the mirror, I think, actually. Um, so now it's unlikely that that makes a huge change to whether people, you know, visit that, use that particular care home, I guess. But what it might do is get people thinking about well when I go and visit my mum in her care home Mm. tomorrow I might ask about what sort of food she's got and I might want to see it Um, or if I'm making a choice about it I might want to know uh, about it or if it's a home care service I might want to know what's being served so that so yeah 
fitting the CQC into that, you know, much wider network of information that people get from all sorts of sources seems really important. Okay, so CQC sees itself as a sort of independent assessor, as you don't mark your own homework. You do identify where services need to improve and perhaps what needs to improve. What exists in the system to support providers to improve quality and is it sufficient? Simon, from a social care perspective... I think it's very variable. What exists is there are um, industry organisations that represent providers that will provide some support. Uh, Social Care Institute for Excellence, there's workforce support from Mm. organisations like Skills for Care. A lot of it will come down to an individual local authority which has the responsibility to what's called market shape. So it's supposed to be making sure that there's uh, enough good quality care in its local area. Um, And if it provides support to bringing groups of care homes together to talk about how they can do improvement or providing individual support to an individual home care service or or, or care home, that seems to me the, the single most important intervention but the likelihood is is that that intervention uh, is quite patchy uh, with some local authorities being much better at it than others. And Ruth in the NHS? Well if we look in the acute and hospital sector there's a whole raft of bodies and organisations who are there to support uh, hospitals to improve NHS improvement, NHS England work with trusts in local areas to help them improve as do organisations like the Leadership Academy and others. There is support available, for example, from the Royal College of General Practice and some others. Our sense is that GPs generally don't take up that support, but there's there's certainly most support is available to to hospitals. Yeah, I agree. I think um, we do a number of guides on uh, driving improvement and people begin to self-help. They're beginning Mm. to look for those guides as a vehicle, typically senior middle managers in organisations that have responsibility. So practice managers, registered managers, and people who who work in uh, health and care are beginning to think what they can do to change. I think that's not a bad thing but it's it's a it would be a bad thing if that was the only thing i think sometimes and what we try to talk about in state of care is some of these things are systemic not not individual so there's certain things you can do to drive your own change mm. but there are other things that you, where you need you do need support from others in the system it's interesting that the support we've talked about is all very sector based mm. and i think the challenge of this is how do you create support that is beyond the sectors yeah. that reaches across the sectors to make the the difference that we want to see Okay, so I have one last question for you all in wrapping up. The government's new funding settlement for the NHS, where would you invest it in terms of getting the biggest bang for your buck in quality terms? So first of all, it's interesting that we call it the NHS fund. I think that the the best, what I've seen that works well in areas are where services are reimagined between uh, acute and community. So... um, Putting the money in to support people of working age but also older people to live well in a community mm. is, I think, where the NHS should be yeah. investing that money. It actually means it's investing in things that are called adult social care services, but I don't I don't think that's a problem. And I think part of the, the way in which £20 billion sh- should be invested is to provide the right support for people to live well outside hospital. I'd agree that the health service needs to focus more on prevention and mm-hmm. keeping people out of its doors. Um, so I wonder whether you could use some of that money to create a fund that people could apply to if they have innovations, new ways of working they want to implement that will help preventative care 
and so it wouldn't necessarily have to be focused on a particular sector or a particular part of the health system, but you could use some of it to try and encourage innovation around prevention. I think workforce is a really Mm. significant issue, both in terms of the training of that workforce, but also pay and terms and conditions. Um, We're going to need um, getting on for up to an extra million social care workers within the next 20 years. Um, If we're going to recruit those people, retain them and make sure that they're doing a really effective job, Mm. it's hard to see how we're going to do that without extra money. Thank you. We've come to the end of our discussion now. Thank you so much to Ruth Robertson, Chris Day and Simon Bottery for all of your thoughts. Thank you also to our listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. And if you have feedback or ideas for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, then please get in touch either on Twitter at The King's Fund or my account, which is at Helena Macarena. I hope you can join us next time. Thank you.